Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Well, hello there. Once again, we welcome you to the Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, last time we spoke, we were just beginning to unpack the Eighth Amendment. And for those just joining us, maybe a, a bit of a uh, resummarizing of, of what that amendment uh, contains as, as we go a little bit further into it. Certainly. The Eighth Amendment is part of the Bill of Rights. It was adopted in 1789, ratified by the state in 1791. But the most, most of the Eighth Amendment is taken out of the English Bill of Rights of 1689, which has its roots back to the Magna Carta of 1215. Also, much of the English Bill of Rights was adopted in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, and the Bill of Rights is, to some extent, based upon that Virginia Declaration of Rights. But the Eighth Amendment simply says, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. And three causes there, excessive bail, excessive fines, cruel and unusual punishment. We talked about excessive bail last week. And, of course, excessive bail is presented not as a punishment. It's not supposed to be a punishment anyway, because we impose bail before a person is ever convicted of a crime. And it's to make sure that the defendant makes his appearances in court and to make sure the defendant doesn't present a threat to other people while he is awaiting trial. But at the same time, it recognizes that he is presumed innocent until proven guilty. And so we require many times that the defendant post bail that pledges that he'll pay a certain amount or that he'll forfeit a certain amount if he doesn't make all his court appearances. And the prohibition is not against bail, it is against excessive bail. And as we saw, excessive bail is that which is more than is necessary to ensure the defendant's appearance. And we determine what is excessive bail on a case-by-case basis. We look to the severity of the offense the person is charged with, with the idea that the more severe the offense and the greater the penalty that could be imposed, the greater the amount of bail that will be required to ensure the defendant's appearance. A defendant that might skip out rather than face a, say, a 10-year sentence for armed robbery would need forfeit, a, say, $1,000 bail for that. But he probably wouldn't forfeit $1,000 bail if he's merely facing a DUI where his fine might be $500. So the greater the amount of the punishment here, we think, think the greater the bail needs to be to ensure the defendant's appearance. And as we saw, we also look at the defendant's ties to the community, his past record, things like that, in determining whether or not we need a large amount of bail to ensure that defendant's appearance. I remember one time, some years ago, a former student mine gave me a call and said something had happened in a court where he was defending a client and he just thought that this was entirely unfair that I don't remember the charge but anyway 
standard bail that they would put up for a person charged with that offense was $5,000. But at that point, the prosecutor stood up and said, Your Honor, just last week we had a defendant skip town and not show up for his appearance when the fine for an offense like this is $5,000. So I think we need to raise it to 10. And the judge agreed. And as my client said, I think there's my student said about his client, I think it is entirely unfair that my client should have his bail doubled because somebody else, somebody totally unknown to him, skipped out last week. Anyway, I see his point. But anyway, let's move on from there to the issue about what constitutes an excessive fine. And that term, excessive fines, is a little hard to define. We don't really know for sure what's going to be considered excessive because, first of all, the fine for a particular offense is going to be assessed, first of all, by statute. The statute might say that whoever is convicted of, let's say, burglary will be fined not less than $1,000 nor more than $3,000. It might say not less than one nor more than three for the first offense, not less than three nor more than five for the second offense, and more for offenses thereafter. Or it might simply have categories of offenses, class A, class B, class C felonies, and so on, and set the maximum and minimum fines as for each category. For a class A felony, this is the max and minimum. For the class B, it's this, and so on. And so the legislature sets these maximums and minimums, and within those maximums and minimums, then the judge will actually pronounce what the fine is going to be. In some cases, it might be the jury, but in most cases, it is the judge. And if the penalty set by law for the offense is not less than one nor more than $3,000, then the judge might set the punishment at, say, 2000 or maybe 2,999 or other factors like this, depending on mitigating or aggravating circumstances. Mitigating circumstances like the defendant has shown remorse for the offense, he's made restitution for it, he, it seems unlikely that he's going to repeat the offense, he has a clean record before, there were aggravating circumstances, he stole money, for example, because his children were hungry or something like that and so or mid or aggravating circumstances that he was especially mean about it he threatened the victims in the process he's done this many times before he's shown no remorse for it whatsoever factors like this but so the judge has a fair amount of discretion within what is said by the law now in some states they have been concerned that Judges seem to exercise way too much discretion in this area, and that some judges are just known to have very strong opinions about DUI and will impose strong punishments for DUI when driving while intoxicated, when other judges might not. Maybe some judges just think marijuana is a terrible thing, and we ought to really throw the book at people convicted of marijuana, while well, others think maybe marijuana ought to be legalized, and for that reason, we can't legalize it, but we'll just give the absolute minimum punishment for it, and so on. And so sometimes it depends on the 
prejudices the judge. And the worst or best thing that could happen in the whole case is, depending on which judge you happen to draw to hear your case. And anyway, so in several jurisdictions, they've adopted a rule where they adopted usually by a commission set up by the State Bar Association, Commission for Mandatory Sentencing Guidelines. And these sentencing guidelines will narrow what the sentence that can be imposed is, so that it isn't just a matter of the discretion of one judge versus another. If the law says the maximum is 3,000, the minimum is 1,000, well, the guidelines might say that if this is the first offense, that the maximum is going to be 2,000 and the minimum is going to be 1,500. And if a judge is going to depart from those guidelines, either by going above them and making a more severe fine or below them and a less severe fine, he is going to have to justify in writing why he has done so. And that still preserves the discretion of the judge to do what he thinks is right under the circumstances. But it also makes it a lot less arbitrary. And the experience in states that have done this is that most judges don't really want to put their reasons in writing. And so most judges stick within those mandatory guidelines. Anyway, so the Constitution, though, is simply saying that there can be no excessive fines, and even the legislature is not going to be given absolute discretion to determine what is an excessive fine. And the legislature will be given a pretty fair discretion on this. And we recognize that these people in the legislature, they know something about the nature of crimes, and they have a right to a great deal of attempt to determine what is excessive and what is not based on how severe they think this particular offense is. But the courts will in some cases strike down a sentence, even if the sentence is one that is set up by the legislature. Like the legislature has said this is the maximum punishment, but the court, the Constitution might it says the sentence can't be excessive. It can't be an excessive fine. And so courts in a few occasions have said that this violates the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment if it is grossly disproportionate to the nature of the offense. Hi, this is Jay Farner, CEO of Rocket Mortgage. Making the right financial decisions has never been more important. We can help guide you to those right decisions now when they matter most. Mortgage rates are near historic lows. So when you call 8338-ROCKET or visit us at rocketmortgage.com to start your refinance, you'll be well on your way to saving money every month. The rate today on our 30-year fixed rate mortgage is 3.375%, APR 3.59%. Right now could be a great time for you to take some positive financial steps forward with a cash-out refinance from Rocket Mortgage, which could give you the boost that you're looking for. In addition, we may be able to help you refinance with little or no out-of-pocket costs. 
At Rocket Mortgage, we're committed to every client, every time, no exceptions, no excuses, giving you the best mortgage experience. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com to learn more. Rates subject to change. Pay 1.875% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. And MLS number 3030. I love golf, and I also stink at golf. I've tried it all. The lessons, the special swing contraptions, the neon brush tees, the funny hats, the putting all of my change in my left pocket. I like to say I just happen to have a high golf handicap. My friends would say I have a high talent disadvantage. Luckily, while I might be fighting some disadvantages on the golf course, at our Faith and Family Mortgage Team, we're lucky to be able to serve listeners with a unique advantage. Our team is an arm of a bigger company who is a direct lender which means our company gets to use its own money and make its own decisions within its own walls. And for you, that can mean shorter turnaround times and often a lower rate, which could save you monthly and lifelong money on a new home, refinance, or cash-out refinance. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Middle Park Road, Melbourne, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to animalistconsumeraccess.org. Corporate animalist number 1330. Equal housing lender. I license in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, Mississippi, North Dakota, South Dakota, or Utah. Welcome to Tax Talk with Hollywood legend Bob Eubanks. You know, as part of Hollywood for a long time, I've seen my fair share of celebrities get in trouble with the IRS. Well, there's one name I trust, the Tax Defense Group. They're the most trusted name in tax. So if you owe more than $10,000 to the IRS, you really need to call my friends at the Tax Defense Group. Ignoring the IRS is not the solution. They can garnish your paycheck, levy your bank accounts, seize your home or business. But the Tax Defense Group could put a stop to all of that and tailor a program that would reduce your tax debt to pennies on the dollar. You gotta love that. So don't just take my word for it. Call them. Find out for yourself. They offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee and they're open 24 hours a day because they know that tax debt doesn't sleep either. Call now for your free and confidential tax analysis from the most trusted name in tax. Call 800-832-1594. 800-832- Once again, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, in the last segment, you were talking about the Eighth Amendment and the uh, the prohibition of excessive fines and excessive bail. Uh, let's pick up where you left off. You were saying something about it has to be proportionate to, to the actual offense done. And I was curious to hear where we go from there. That is correct. Um, the... Eighth Amendment prohibits excessive fines. That's part of what we read in the Old Testament of let the punishment fit the crime, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and so on. But excessive fines, even if the legislature has decided that this is an authorized fine, and even if the judge has decided within his discretion that he should impose this fine, he will still be struck down by the higher courts based on the Eighth Amendment if it is disproportionate to the nature of the offense. For example, if the legislature were to say that anyone who is convicted of overtime parking will be fined $1 million, well, a court would undoubtedly say that that is grossly disproportionate to the nature of the offense, and they would strike that down, even though the legislature or the judge 
both for some reason thought that was appropriate. There is another area that we need to think about here, too, in regard to excessive fines. And this is where it's being litigated quite a bit in the courts today, as well as reform and legislatures and so on. And that is what we call excessive or what we call excessive bail or excessive fines of civil forfeiture. Now, here's what we mean by civil forfeiture. There are statutes, federal and in many cases, state statutes as well that provide that if you use an instrument in the commission of the crime, that instrument can be forfeited to the government, in addition to whatever fines you might pay for the offense itself. Let's say, for example, you've been selling marijuana, and you've been using your car to deliver the marijuana that you've been selling. You're convicted of the sale of marijuana. You're fined maybe $1,000 for that. But because you've used your car, then in a separate proceeding, the attorney general of your state may bring a civil suit requiring the forfeiture of your car because it was used in the commission of that crime. We've had cases, for example, of people whose houses might have been used for the commission of certain crimes, maybe drug offenses, maybe others, and the house has been forfeited. And sometimes that has been true even if the offense, even if the house or the car was not owned by the person who committed the crime, but was owned by his wife or his parents or somebody else. And anyway, many are of the opinion that this is constituting a gross abuse of what we think is fair process, and some say this is a violation of the excessive fines clause. And we have a case from 1998, the United States versus Bajakjian case, it's a case of a Syrian immigrant who came to the United States with his family, and he brought with him $357,000 in his luggage in order to pay a debt in in Cyprus. Actually, this is flying from Los Angeles to Cyprus. He owed a debt in Cyprus. He brought the money in cash to pay the debt in Cyprus. Now, federal government of the United States has a Bank Secrecy Act, and that Bank Secrecy Act requires that all international currency transfers exceeding $10,000 in value have to be reported to the federal government on a currency or other monetary instruments report. And he had not reported that. He may not have even known that he was supposed to. But because of this, and that, by the way, that because of this, the U.S. government tried to make him forfeit that entire $357,000. Well, the case went to the United States Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Thomas, writing the opinion, held that this was grossly disproportionate to the nature of the offense itself, even if we agree that it should be an offense not to report a transaction. A forfeiture of $357,000 is just ridiculous. And so they struck that down under the excessive fines provision of the Eighth Amendment. 
We had a case where we at the foundation filed a amicus brief this past year, the Tim's versus Indiana case. And this involved a man who had inherited some money from his father, about $40,000, used that $40,000 to drive a picker, to buy a pickup truck. And he used that pickup truck to deliver some drugs in an illegal drug sale. Now, he was wrong at doing that, and he was punished for doing it. He served a, I believe, a prison term as well as paid a fine. But then the state of Indiana sought to make him forfeit that $40,000 truck in addition to that. $40,000 was many times disproportionate to the a fine that was involved here and many times disproportionate to the value of the drugs that were sold. Anyway, so this went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. We filed a brief with the court in this case, and our argument to the Supreme Court in this case was, first of all, it is grossly disproportionate. It violates the excessive fines provision. But we made another argument, too. Our other argument was that this is an improper co-mingling of the criminal and civil aspects of law, using the civil law to pursue a criminal end. Because civil law and criminal law are very different. In criminal law, you're entitled to the presumption of innocence and have the charges proven against you by proof beyond a reasonable doubt and these various other protections that are available to you in the courts if you're charged with a criminal offense. But in civil court, you don't have those protections. And so we think it is entirely wrong to use the civil process to pursue a criminal end. Well, the Supreme Court agreed in part, and they remanded this case back down to the court, the Indiana Supreme Court, to review and determine whether or not it was grossly disproportionate and this is still being litigated at the Indiana Supreme Court level right now. Anyway, I might just simply add to this that, well, we're waiting to see what Indiana decides. Besides there being many cases involving this issue of civil forfeiture in the courts, it is also being considered in the legislatures of many states. In some states, there are bills in the legislatures to abolish this whole idea of civil forfeiture, which... I personally think it should be abolished entirely. If we don't think the punishments for a certain crime are severe enough, then we should increase those in the criminal statutes. But we shouldn't be using the civil process for this. In other states, there is simply civil forfeiture reform, which would have the effect of maybe lowering the amounts of this or providing added protections, for example, that a vehicle can't be forfeited if it doesn't even belong to the party who committed the offense and things like this. But I would certainly encourage the support of statutes and reforms in this area for civil forfeiture reform. I'd go a step further and I'd abolish civil forfeiture entirely. Well, we've been talking about civil forfeiture here as part of the excessive fines clause. But after our break, we're going to be looking at the other portion of the of the Eighth Amendment that prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. People often say, if somebody has done something they don't like, that's cruel and unusual punishment. Well, let's see what it actually means in the standpoint of the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. 
And we are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're talking about the Eighth Amendment today. And, Colonel, this is a part that I think a lot of folks are going to have interest in, or have interest in and that is cruel and unusual punishment. And what is cruel and unusual punishment? We'll see some really interesting issues as we discuss this this afternoon. And when we look to cruel and unusual, the courts have said generally that cruel and unusual refers to the nature of punishment, not its duration. In other words, it's a sentencing somebody to 50 years in jail for the crime of simple larceny. That might seem severe, but up until recently, at least, the courts would probably say that that was not cruel and unusual. Cruel and unusual refers to the type of punishment, and jail, the courts have said, provided a reasonably humane jail, jail is not cruel and unusual punishment by itself. Well, then what is cruel and unusual? Well, whipping beating, things like that, would be considered cruel and unusual today, although they probably would not have been considered cruel and unusual in the days of our founding fathers. You can go back to the scriptures, and even the scriptures talk against cruel and unusual punishment. But one of the things the scriptures talk about is the administration of stripes, you know, whipping and so on, how it cannot exceed... Forty stripes, the Old Testament says that whipping cannot exceed 40 stripes. Now, 40 stripes, well, it's not just like with a whip. Usually that meant with something like a cat of nine tails with jagged pieces of metal or stone on it. And so this would produce a lot of bloodshed, and it would be a lot more severe than you might think. But the Old Testament says that you cannot have any whipping that involves more than 40 stripes. Now, in the New Testament, it says 39 stripes. Now, why 39 in the New Testament and 40 in the Old Testament? Well, there's a couple possible reasons. One reason is just to make sure they didn't miscount. We allow a one-stripe margin of error. But another reason that is sometimes suggested is that commonly when they scourged somebody, they used a scourge that was with three straps on it. And so a scourge hitting somebody, one strike with that, would involve three straps hitting you. And so that's actually three stripes. Well, 13 times three is 39. 14 times three is 42. And there's no way of doing an even 40. And so the New Testament says, 39. Well, either of those is a possible reason, but the point is, even in the scriptures, we see a reason to prohibit cruel and unusual punishment, but also in the scriptures, it seems clear there that the mere fact that we're talking about the infliction of pain, that does not mean by itself that this punishment is cruel and unusual. In fact, one of the things that we find utterly absent from the old and New Testaments, as far as the criminal justice system, as we see it in the laws of Moses, is a prison system. When we see people being in prison in the Old Testament and in the New Testament both, 
it is usually either a temporary incarceration awaiting trial, or else it's a foreign prison by the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Romans or somebody else. In the Mosaic law, the various punishments that could be imposed with servitude and reimbursement and other factors like that, but we don't see jail, we don't see prison as part of the Mosaic law of punishment. That doesn't really come in in the United States until the 1700s and early 1800s with the Quakers. And the Quakers established penitentiaries, calling it penitentiary with the idea that here, convicted criminals are going to be penitent for their sins. Well, how penitent they actually are is certainly open to some question. But in colonial days, the idea of a whipping post, the idea of a ducking stool, the idea of stocks and so on was fairly common. And prison was not nearly as common. And we could ask ourselves, is whipping really more inhumane than putting someone in prison for maybe several years of their life where not only are they going to be separated from family and deprived of liberty, but they are going to be embittered and be basically in a prep school for crime and so on. And anyway, I think there is a good question whether some of these things like a whipping and so on is really more humane than prison. Let me tell you about a couple prison or a couple sentences that we see from colonial days. This one takes place in Massachusetts, and John Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts, describes this one in his jail. It is a couple suspected of adultery. They confessed that they had been in bed together but denied actually having relations. And the court was a little skeptical of this, but the court concluded that since the confession was the main evidence, then you had to include not just the fact that they confessed being in bed, but that they denied doing anything else. And so the court said, based on the biblical rule that in the mouth of two or three witnesses let everything established, we really don't have the basis for a conviction here. And so what they did instead is... Here's what Winthrop records, whereupon the case seeming doubtful to the jury, they judged it safest in case of life to find as they did. So the court had judged them to stand upon the scaffold at the place of execution with nooses around their necks for one hour, and then to be whipped or each of them to pay 20 pounds. Standing there on the scaffold with a noose around your neck for an hour, that would probably be a pretty good way of teaching a lesson, and probably more so than prison. Then we had another instance, and this one is in Norfolk County in Virginia. And this is a woman who was convicted of having slandered a neighbor, which was an offense at that time, and she is ordered to ask forgiveness in the church, go to church and in front of the entire church, ask forgiveness for the offense of slander. And when she refused, she is ordered to appear in court on a charge of contempt. She didn't appear. And in her absence, here's what the court ordered. The sheriff shall take her to the house of a commissioner 
and there she shall receive twenty lashes. She is then to be taken to church the next Sabbath to make confession according to the former order of the court. If she refuses, she is to be taken to a commissioner and to be given thirty lashes, and again given an opportunity to do penance in church. If she still refuses to obey the order of court, she is then to receive fifty lashes. If she continues in her contempt, she is to receive fifty lashes, and thereafter fifty every Monday, until she performs her penance. Now, the records are incomplete. What she did after that, we don't know. But point of the matter is that the founding fathers of this nation, when they drafted that cruel and unusual punishment provision, probably would not have thought that cruel and unusual punishment prohibits all forms of physical punishment, but would be perfectly okay with long prison terms. And yet that's the way it is being applied today. But there are times now when the courts have said that cruel and unusual punishment does preclude life imprisonment for the, like the three, three strikes and out, you have three prior offenses and it's automatic life without parole. The courts have used the cruel and unusual punishments to invalidate a few punishments like that. They have also used it at times concerning prison conditions and said imprisoning somebody under conditions that are inhumane violates the cruel and unusual punishment clause. And we're going to see a lot more of how this is being applied today and how it applies with what we call the evolving standard of decency. And anyway, so I think, I think we're going to find that very interesting and in seeing how so much of this is tied in with the Darwinian theory of evolution. Okay, Colonel, we've got just about uh, 30 seconds before we we go to break again. For those who want to do some follow-up on this, I know there are texts that uh, that you have written that uh, that dive much, much deeper into the laws. Can we take about 30 seconds and just describe some of the resources that are available? A couple that may find especially interesting are the set that I drafted several years ago by Nord Skog, published in 2016, titled historical and theological foundations of law. My examples from the American colonies were based upon historical and theological foundations. Also, the Heritage Guide to the Constitution by the Heritage Foundation. think some of the top investors in the world are buying gold. Recently, a handful of billionaires have been accumulating gold over other forms of investments. When the world's financial moguls like Sam Zell begin choosing metals, perhaps it's time you listen and follow suit with your own personal investments. Gold is formally recognized as a hedge against currency depreciation and inflation. Take David Einhorn as one example. Einhorn founded Greenlight Capital in 1996 and surged that fund from $900,000 to as high as $11 billion. Einhorn believes that the central bank's recent stimulus efforts will have an effect on pushing up the value of gold. He keeps 10% of his firm's value stored in gold bullion. If you're interested in knowing more about gold, platinum, and palladium, call Noble Gold for a no-pressure consultation. They have the most experienced representatives and an exclusive pipeline to metal sources. Visit them at noblegoldinvestments.com. That's noblegoldinvestments.com. 
When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now, 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. Each policy points and availability vary by state. Balance of nature, changing the world, one life at a time. I have seen a, a change in how I feel. I do feel better. I actually feel like doing stuff, <laughs> if that makes any sense. It's it's just a, a better feeling just throughout my whole body. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. Now you can fly anywhere in the world and pay discount prices on your airline tickets. Book a flight today to London, Paris, Madrid, or anywhere else you want to go. And pay a lot less guaranteed. Call the International Travel Department right now at low-cost airlines. 800-215-5141. 800-215-5141. That's 800-215-5141. Once again, we welcome you back. This is the final segment of today's Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as we're talking about the Eighth Amendment, I'm glad to see that we have come to one of the more controversial parts of this amendment, that being uh, concerning capital punishment. Exactly. And now the Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishments. It doesn't say anything about capital punishment explicitly. But we have a Supreme Court decision from 1972, Furman versus Georgia, in which capital punishment had been part of the sentence. And the challenge that was raised was that this was a violation of the Constitution, went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled by a five to four decision that capital punishment, as it was practiced in that case, was unconstitutional. Now, they disagreed as to why it was unconstitutional. In fact, you have nine separate opinions written in this case. And some of them said it's unconstitutional because the defendant wasn't given an adequate opportunity to present mitigating circumstances. Some of them said it was unconstitutional because it discriminates against minorities. But two of the justices, Brennan and Marshall, said in their opinion that capital punishment was cruel and unusual because it it violated the Eighth Amendment. And the Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. But of course, as we already said, the Eighth Amendment does not say capital punishment is cruel and unusual. 
It doesn't seem likely that the framers intended to prohibit capital punishment by the Eighth Amendment. We see that it was almost universally accepted at the time the Constitution was written. Ben Rush and a few others would have been opposed to capital punishment, but very, very few others did at that time. But also, in the Fifth Amendment, we see an express reference to capital punishment, where we see in every capital or otherwise serious crime, and it seems unlikely that the court would sanction capital punishment in the Fifth Amendment and then turn around and prohibit it in the Eighth Amendment. But Justice Brennan and Justice Marshall say that that doesn't really matter because the intention of the Founding Fathers is not what really governs here. They said, part of their opinion in that case, Berman versus Georgia, the meaning of the amendment is not fixed and static. Rather, it must draw its meaning from the evolving standard of decency that marks the progress of a maturing society. Now think about that phrase, evolving standard of decency that marks the progress of a maturing society. What they are saying is that even though capital punishment was not cruel and unusual by that rather primitive and barbaric standard of 1789, it is cruel and unusual by our humane and enlightened standard of today. Because what they're using here, they say, is an evolving standard. Now, this comes back to the late 1800s when we see the development of the theory of evolution and see the application of it to law. We read about this when Woodrow Wilson, in his book, The New Freedom, speaks about the Darwinian interpretation of the Constitution. He says that the framers of the Constitution were Newtonian. They believed in the universe that is governed by fixed, absolute, unchanging laws, but that we need to move away from that, and that a living political Constitution must be Darwinian. And he says all the progressives ask is permission to interpret the Constitution according to the Darwinian principle. In other words, the idea that the meaning of it changes with time. Now, we see that taking place all over the place, the courts giving new and previously unthought of meanings to parts of the Constitution. For example, the term liberty, as we see it in the 14th Amendment, even though the framers would never have thought so, we now interpret the term liberty to include a zone of privacy that includes the right to have an abortion, that includes the right to engage in homosexual conduct that includes the right to same-sex marriage and other things that the framers of the Constitution and even the framers of the 14th Amendment would have found utterly repugnant. But the idea that the Constitution has no fixed meaning, rather its meaning is going to change with time. Now, the danger of this approach, this living Constitution approach, as we see that term being used here, is that it isn't the public that determines the living constitution's change in meaning, this evolving standard of decency. It isn't pastors. It isn't even legislators. It is 
judges, and generally when we say judges, we mean unelected federal judges on the court, and that any time a consensus of five of the nine unelected federal judges on the court decide that the words of the Constitution mean something different from what we were going to interpret them to mean before, the meaning gets changed. And that is very dangerous because it can move in more than one direction. Remember, the same court that can read into the Constitution rights that are not there can also read out of the Constitution rights that are there. And Justice Brennan, in writing this opinion and in statements that he made on another occasion at a Georgetown seminar on constitutional law, talking about this evolving standard of decency, he seems to assume that we are always going to be evolving in the same direction, always evolving toward a greater recognition of human rights, of human liberties, of human dignity and the like. And I see no guarantee that humanity is moving in that direction. It could just as easily move in the opposite direction toward a new age of barbarism. And let's just say that a court were to direct that the defendant, well, one of the punishments that I sometimes use jokingly in my con law classes is 99 years in the electric chair. Well, we'd say that is, pardon the pun, but shocking. Or what if a judge were to say that the defendant is going to be skimmed alive? Well, that sounds horrible, and yet, actually, that was a punishment that was used in ancient times sometimes. But let's say we sentence a defendant to be skimmed alive, and the defendant says, Your Honor, I protest that that's cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment. Well, let's say that we have a modern Darwinian judge who follows this evolving standard of decency, and he says, yes, it is true that the founding fathers would have considered skinning alive to be cruel and unusual, but the meaning of the Eighth Amendment is not fixed and static. Rather, it takes its meaning from the evolving standard of decency that marks the progress of a maturing society. And when we look at society today, when we see our tolerance for violence in our public games and in our media and the like, we really can't say that skinning alive is cruel and unusual by today's broad-minded standard. And therefore, we direct that the defendant be delivered to the taxidermist and the execution began. Point of the matter is, An evolving standard is no firm basis on which to rest individual rights. It can evolve in more than one direction. It can evolve toward totalitarianism. It can evolve toward savagery just as easily as it could evolve in the direction of more humaneness. No, I think we need to stick with the principle that The Constitution means what the framers intended by those words. And if we want to change it, we do so by amending it, not by stretching it beyond recognition. Now, we've also seen a couple cases where the courts have said that it is cruel and unusual to execute somebody who is under the age of 18 at the time he committed the offense or who is mentally retarded, 
or who is insane. So there are other categories. And there are more cases on this going on regularly in the courts today. But point of the matter is, cruel and unusual should have a fixed meaning. It shouldn't be decided by this evolving standard of decency. Well, that makes a whole lot of sense. Colonel, thank you again for explaining more about the Eighth Amendment of the Bill of Rights. I'm looking forward as we move ahead to the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Those are two of my favorites and are also two of the most overlooked. Tell everybody where they can find uh, the uh, Foundation for Moral Law. Interesting book titled The Forgotten Ninth Amendment. And there's also a group called the Tenth Amendment Foundation on their website. But the Foundation's website is simply Moral Law 2 Ls. Dot org, morallaw.org.